Welcome to episode 42 of the Axiom Podcast, where today we're going through chapter 6 of the book that I wrote last year, and the title is uh, Customers Are Real People. This is about sales and marketing processes in small business. So I'll go through the chapter, and then we'll come back and talk about it when I'm done. Chapter 6, Customers Are Real People. Sooner or later, businesses that desire growth must shift their focus from inside processes to outside sales. Growth requires a steady stream of customers making consistent purchases. As simple as it may sound, getting clear about exactly what you are selling and exactly whom you are selling it to is the first step toward growing sales. Small business owners know their customers. This is mostly because the business owner is the salesperson-in-chief, who may have been the single point of contact for most customers for years. They know their customers' families, their likes and dislikes, their product purchase histories, and their budget constraints. But often, when they step into the conference room to design a sales and marketing program, they lose that personal perspective. Customers are real people. They think like real people and make decisions like real people. They like to hear their names. They like predictability and certainty. They enjoy personal connection. And your sales and marketing process should acknowledge all of that humanity and personality. The more you focus on exactly who your customers are and what you are selling them, the more effective you will be. The secret sauce behind most small business growth is the ability to scale up a marketing and sales function that can consistently provide new customers. That program must preserve the personal relationship. It's not enough to have the personal touch without process, and it's not enough to have process without the personal touch. Two friends of mine, both financial planners, exemplify this difference. Dave has become very clear about who his customers are, what he sells them, and how he does it. Jason has a broader definition of who his customers are, provides a much broader range of services, and is known for exceptional service and personal attention. Both have done very well, but Dave's business is growing at an extraordinary rate. Dave's clients are former blue and gray-collar retirees, They are retired school teachers, firefighters, policemen, construction foremen, executive assistants, and government workers. All of them are or soon will be receiving Social Security. Almost all of them have moved to Florida from the Northeast. Almost all of them have grandkids out of state. They were taught to live on less than what they earn and to save the difference, and they have done that for the last 30 to 50 years. Dave finds these clients by offering free monthly seminars on retirement and Social Security. He is a masterful communicator. He is on a mission to make sure these people who have sacrificed so much finally enjoy their retirement. Dave's message is, enjoy retirement and stop worrying about running out of money. Interested attendees are invited to schedule a consult with Dave. If things move forward from there, they become a client over the next 30 days. This sales and marketing program has worked so well that Dave needs to hire new people to take care of his ever-growing list of new clients. Jason's approach to growth is much different. He is looking for new financial advisors who will go out and find their own clients. While Dave has figured out the process for getting new clients and needs lower-skilled people to take care of them, Jason hasn't figured out how to get new clients and needs expensive professionals to get their own clients. Hopefully, these expensive professionals will stick around Jason's firm long enough for him to enjoy some of the shared profits. Dave has a marketing and sales process. Jason does not. 
There are four fundamental pieces to a good sales and marketing process in your business. Number one, your offer. Number two, your value. Number three, your pitch. And number four, your delivery. Your offer is the thing you're trying to sell. Dave and Jason are both selling financial planning and asset management services. But Dave has gotten much more specific. He has narrowed his offer to cover only a subset of the things that Jason offers. He knows his customers don't need all of those things. Your value is the reason clients should trade their money for your product or service. They will only do that if they believe that what you have to offer is more valuable to them than the money they have to spend. Dave's value is the security and peace of mind to retire without worry. That peace of mind is worth more to his clients than the 1% per year that he charges them. Your pitch is the method you use to ask clients to spend money with you. Dave's pitch is his series of seminars and follow-up meetings. Each one is well-rehearsed, consistent, and repeatable. Your delivery happens after the customer signs on. It is made up of the product they take home, the service they enjoy, and all of the subsequent interactions you have with them. Dave's delivery is built on reinforcing the peace of mind and security he built up as the main value in working with him. Developing a marketing and sales process for your business does not have to be extraordinarily complex or expensive. You don't need experts or college degrees in marketing. You do need to sit down and think deliberately about these four areas, and I'm going to walk you through each one. Your offer. When it comes to what you are offering your customers, are you offering them too little or too much? Almost always, the answer is that you are offering them too much. The most successful small businesses get very specific about what they offer and whom they offer it to. A great example of this is the contrast between the two restaurant chains, Five Guys and Steak and Shake. Both have hamburgers at the center of their menu offering, yet Steak and Shake has managed to add just 550 locations over the last 80 years, while Five Guys has added over 1,500 in less than half that time. Steak and Shake sells everything from hamburgers to pancakes. Five Guys sells burgers and the occasional hot dog. Steak and Shake has counter seating, booth seating, table seating, and drive through service. Five Guys has no drive throughs, no counter, and seat yourself, clean yourself, bus yourself tables. Steak and Shake positions their restaurants predominantly at busy interstate highways and caters to everyone from truckers to teenagers and soccer moms. Five Guys restaurants are almost always in strip centers situated in middle and upper middle class shopping districts. To start building clarity around your offer, you need to think first about your core offering. Every business has core offerings and additional offerings. Five Guys core offering is burgers, but they also sell milkshakes. Dave Kennan's core offering is financial planning, but he also sells life insurance. If it is hard for you to pick one product or service as your core offering, that is the first indication you are spread too thin. You don't have a core offering, and your business is going to be hard-pressed to grow. Small business owners are notorious for underestimating the importance of having a single core offering. One of the hardest things we do is try to convince business owners that it is necessary to prune services and products to grow the company. Author and consultant Mike McCallowitz turned this idea of pruning into a book. 
The entire premise of the pumpkin plan is that the only way to grow a 300-pound blue ribbon winning pumpkin is by killing off, or pruning, all but the single healthiest pumpkin on the vine. Sound ruthless? It can be. But think about all the time, energy, and money being sucked up by non-core offerings. If you stopped doing those things today, you would take a revenue hit. But you would also realize immediate cost savings and focus your effort on areas of the business that actually produce profit. Our experience with clients has overwhelmingly shown that pruning reduces short-term revenue, increases short-term profit, and drastically increases long-term revenue and profit. When we talk about pruning, we are talking about moving from being a generalist to a specialist. And at the economic heart of the argument for specialization is the reality that focusing your efforts results in lower costs and higher revenue. Here's what happens when you specialize. Number one, specialists can perform the service or deliver the product faster with less turnaround time. Because of this, they are able to command a premium price. Number two, specialists focus their spending and are able to obtain necessary products and services at lower costs. Number three, Specialists have a narrower target market, enabling them to focus their marketing and sales promotion dollars, ultimately spending less and achieving more. Number four, specialists are top of mind with their customers and referral partners and generate more word-of-mouth business than generalists. Number five, specialists have shorter sales cycles, enabling them to convert prospects to customers much faster due to the fact that most prospects have already pre-qualified themselves as good customers by showing up at a specialist. Right after starting my own firm, I got to work with one of these specialists, and they are still a client today. David and his partners are roofing contractors, but they specialize in elastomeric metal roof coatings. These products extend the life of a metal roof by 15 to 20 years. During my first visit to their nondescript office, I was impressed by the aerial photos of job sites hanging on the walls. I saw picture after picture of gleaming white roofs on warehouses, manufacturing facilities, condo buildings, self-storage properties, aircraft hangars. They were everywhere. David explained how he paid a couple of hundred dollars to get high-quality aerial photos before and after every job. David created a postcard mailer and contracts with a direct mail company. With just a couple of days' notice, he can have the direct mailer send out 10,000 postcards to metal building owners in any area of the southeast that has experienced heavy rainfall during the past week. Not long after these mailings, the phone will start ringing. Because David speaks the language and knows exactly what a leaking metal roof can do to a distributor's inventory or to a manufacturer's equipment, the sales process is fairly quick. Today, David's portfolio of aerial photographs covers hundreds, if not thousands, of properties. He does not have to send out as many mailers today. If you own a 20-year-old metal building in the southeast, you probably already have his name on file. If your metal roof leaks there's a good chance you know where to find David and his company, Unicote Industrial Roofing Corp. What makes David special? He knows what his core offering is, and he sticks to it. He knows who his customers are, and he knows what they need most from him. Knowing your core offering and whom to offer it to is the first step in creating an efficient sales and marketing engine. Your value. 
The second piece of your marketing and sales process is your value. There is only one reason customers will do business with you. They value your product or service more than they value the cash in their pocket. We experience this every day as customers ourselves. For example, the gas in my tank is more important to me than the $50 it takes to fill up the tank. David's customers place a high value on dry inventory and equipment because without those things, their business literally grinds to a halt. Fundamental to your value proposition is your pricing. It is possible to charge so much for a roof coating that customers would rather have soggy inventory. But the inverse is also true. When you underprice, your customers wonder if you know what you are doing. They worry that your product is of poor quality. They become skeptical and generate more customer service inquiries and warranty claims, even when the product isn't at fault. Pricing is mostly art and a little bit of science. The science is knowing your costs. If you set your price below your costs, you won't be in business very long, so know your costs. After your costs are covered, the question becomes, what is the market price? To find the answer, you have to ask the market. You can do this by consistently raising prices and measuring when sales levels finally start to drop off. Or you can go talk to real customers and get real, honest answers. My experience is that most businesses will not do the hard work to find out the answer to this question. Whether they are too busy or too uncomfortable, they just won't do the work to find out. Those willing to do the work usually crush their competition. Do the work. Call 20 customers and have real conversations with them about what they value in your service, how much you save them, how much revenue you generate for them, and what non-monetary benefits they get from working with you or from buying your products. What don't they want to pay for? What are they frustrated with? How much more would they be willing to pay or recommend that a friend pay if you fixed all the frustrations they currently have? If you ask these questions, there's a good chance you will find out that you are underpricing. This happens so often because to the roofer, a roof isn't that big of a deal. But to the person with water pouring through the ceiling, it's a huge deal. To the CPA, a tax return isn't a big deal. But to the client, the stress of an IRS audit and all of those incomprehensible forms is a huge deal. Your customer doesn't take your product or service for granted like you do. My plumber wouldn't even consider paying someone $100 to fix a leaking pipe, but to me, it's a bargain. Do the hard work. Go out into the market and find out what the value proposition is for your core offering and set your prices accordingly. Your pitch. The third piece of your marketing and sales plan is your pitch. I use pitch to cover everything from your advertising all the way through to closing the sale. Just like determining your value, most businesses will not do the simple but hard work required to perfect their pitch. There is a simple way to tell when your pitch is ready, even if your product or service isn't available to ship yet. When 10 people have said, take my credit card number and charge me when you deliver, you know your pitch is ready. You might need to have 100 conversations to get 10 credit card numbers, but those 100 conversations are gold. In them, you will hear the language your customer uses to describe their frustrations. You will understand the problems your product solves and the language the customer uses to describe those solutions. You will discover the features that no one really cares about or is willing to pay for. 
and you will take all of that information as it comes in, and you will refine your product and your pitch as you go. Your pitch should also be consistent and repeatable. Consistency is important because as you measure results, you want to be able to make small changes and measure their effect. Over time, you can hone your pitch and train others to deliver it just as consistently as you do. That is how you build a sales force. You also want to be able to iterate on marketing plans and advertising. To do that, you need consistent execution and consistent measuring of results, so you need to know your numbers. You should be measuring everything that has to do with your pitch, including the following. Number one, the number of leads coming into the business on a daily, weekly, and monthly basis. Number two, the average cost of each lead. Number three, your top five lead sources and the number of leads produced by each. Number four, the number of proposals or pitches given. Number five, the close rate on those proposals. Number six, the amount of your average sale. Number seven, your average sale frequency per customer or how many times the average customer buys from you in a year. Do the work no one else is willing to do, and you will get the results no one else seems able to get. Every one of these numbers is available to the business owner willing to go get it. Your delivery. The final step is delivery, because if you can't deliver on your sales promises, your marketing and sales process and your business will be short-lived. We have already talked about this regarding the playbook, but it belongs here as well. You must have a process for delivery that can keep up with sales. That isn't to say that things will always run smoothly. It is entirely normal for a growing business to experience the growing pains of backlogs and longer-than-expected lead times. But if your product or service is fundamentally flawed, the best marketing and sales program will be useless. Do you deliver the product or service consistently? Do you have a section of your playbook dedicated to it? Do you follow up with customers to make sure your value proposition is still relevant? Do you track your numbers closely enough to quickly spot small problems before they become huge ones? Do you have a pitch that is documented so that you can tweak it and work toward continuous improvement? If I go back to Five Guys, it isn't because I admire the concise menu or the focused core offering. It is because I know I'm going to get a good hamburger. And if I ever fail to get a good hamburger, it's going to make me think twice about going back. I probably will, but maybe just once. If they let me down twice, there are plenty of other options. It is common for a business to struggle with the two competing priorities of chasing the work and doing the work. To escape this cycle, you must have the discipline to work on the marketing and sales process. Once you make the transition, you will have a consistent stream of new customers coming into the business and an operations team capable of getting all that new work out the door. Undertake the building of your marketing and sales process deliberately by addressing each of the four areas, offer, value, pitch, and delivery. The secret ingredient. I want to say one more thing about bringing the marketing and sales process together. It is the secret ingredient that sets one business apart from another. It is this. A business with a personality will crush a competitor without a soul. Personality comes down to 10 simple habits. We notice them every time we see them. We talk about them to our friends and neighbors, and we mention them in online reviews. We come back to businesses over and over because these things cover over a multitude of sins. 
Everything from expensive prices to botched delivery can be overcome by these silver bullets of personality. Number one, let customers hear the sound of their own name. Number two, say hello and goodbye and mean it. Number three, look customers in the eye when you talk to them. Number four, smile. Number five, say something, anything other than a canned response. Number six, say thank you. Number seven, apologize and ask forgiveness. Number eight, talk good about your customers behind their backs. Number nine, ask if there's anything else you can do to help them. Number 10, give them a gift every now and then to show your gratitude. If any of your employees are incapable or unwilling to do these things, they have no business interacting with customers. If you don't see people on your team doing these things, it is because you aren't showing them how it's done. If you think this stuff is too hard or not worth your time, there's a competitor out there that's glad you are lazy. Not long after college, I realized that there were two types of CPAs. There were the stereotypical spreadsheet types that love bank reconciliations and tracking down every last penny. They were the heart of the firm and the ones that clients wanted working on their books. They were never happier than when they had a full inbox and a quiet day ahead of them. We'll call them the bean counters. Then there were the CPAs who had full calendars. They spent their days meeting with clients, taking prospects to lunch, and managing the teams of accountants and CPAs doing all those bank reconciliations. We'll call this group the Rainmakers. I noticed that bean counters all worked in cubicles and the Rainmakers all had offices with windows. I also noticed that while the clients said they liked the bean counters, they never called and asked to speak with them. They always called and asked to talk with the Rainmakers. My point here is twofold. First, CPA firms realized early on that there were some people who were better at dealing with customers than others, the Rainmakers. But they also realized that they needed the bean counters to build a successful firm, and they put those people in the right seats. The second point is that the market placed a much higher value on the Rainmakers. Their ability to deal with customers placed them in higher demand and enabled them to command higher salaries. In your marketing and sales program, you cannot ignore the fact that some of your people shouldn't be doing much with customers and others should be working almost exclusively with them. As the leader, it's your job to put people in the right seats and give them the tools they need to succeed. In this respect, effective marketing and sales is as much about putting people in the right spots as it is about having the right process. You know, I think we make, sometimes sometimes we make this stuff harder than it needs to be. And I remember when I was uh, working, one of the jobs I had early in my career, uh, I was in a startup company, and we were going for an IPO as a technology-based company, and they were building out the uh, the infrastructure for, you know, companies going to do several hundred million dollars in sales. So we had, you know, a CEO, we had a president, we had all these different vice presidents, and I remember the marketing guys. So we, we had these VPs of marketing, and these guys were from Procter & Gamble, and they had this uh, kind of extensive marketing background, and they were they, they were well-skilled in the disciplines of marketing. And I didn't even know what that meant. Um, and looking back on it, and I mean, not, not to disparage the marketing people. Marketing, I mean, there's a, a tremendous amount of value in it. But I, th- I think we gave these guys too much credit. <laughs> and I say that maybe from the perspective of small businesses, 
you know, the businesses we're working with typically are somewhere between $2 million, maybe $50, $60 million, sometimes more than that. But generally, you know, those, those qualify as small businesses in, in the kind of universe of privately held companies. And uh, it just, when we get down to it, it is, do you have a process for bringing new customers into your business? Or you just leave it up to happenstance, or you leave it up to word of mouth, um, and you're just basically order taking. And so when we talk about sales and marketing, uh, and, and a client says, well, can you help, with the, help us with our sales and marketing? You know, sometimes they mean advertising. Sometimes they mean um, sales process. You know, like what, how do we, how does a salesperson go out there and interact with a customer? And what does the script look like? Or is it scripted? Or what tools are they going to carry? Or what collateral materials are they going to leave behind? Sometimes they're talking about pricing, but really sales and marketing is all of that. And it is the process by which you bring new customers, new well, first you bring new prospects into your, your sales and marketing process and you convert them into customers. And then you deliver your product or service to them. And once once you're into service product delivery, you're kind of into the operation side of the business. But there's still a huge part of sales and marketing in terms of managing the lifetime value of that customer and being able to offer them additional services or repeating services that if you don't, if you're not cognizant of the sales and marketing process while you're delivering the service, you may not be able to increase the lifetime value, sell them additional products or get them on subscription services, that kind of stuff. So you really have to be thinking about sales and marketing through the entire interaction with the customer from the time before they were a customer, there just may be a lead to then they become a prospect to then they eventually become a customer and then hopefully a repeat customer. And so the easiest way for me to think about it is the, is the four ways that I covered in the book, which is offer, value, pitch, and delivery. So offer, you know, we talked about this and, and I'm probably just going to recap some of this stuff from the chapter, but Specialization I mean, is one of those things that we find businesses very, very reluctant to embrace. And it goes something like this. Well, in my area, you know, there are, so let's say, I'll make up an example. Um, so let's say I'm a, a, a roofer. And you say, well, you know, there are, maybe there's 30,000 households, you know, in, in the in my little metro area. So I want to be able to to take a piece of that 30,000 30,000 household market. 30,000 roofs out there that potentially are going to need a, a roof at some point or a repair at some point. Let's just stick to roof. So then you say, um, well, you know, business is kind of slow. Maybe we should start doing repairs. So now because you know, there's 30 there's of the 30,000 roofs that are out there, not all of them need a new roof this year, but a good chunk of them are going to need repairs. And you say, okay, we'll, we'll, we'll start doing repairs as well. And you go, well, you know, we still don't have enough business and, you know, things aren't, you know, you do some more sales. Let's start doing, let's start a maintenance program because maybe those that that don't have a, a need for repairs, maybe they'll be interested in like an annual maintenance program to avoid repairs. And you just keep going down this rabbit trail of continuously adding new products and services. And then you look up 20 years later and there's this smorgasbord of all these different things. And, and 20 years later, it's not just roof replacements and roof repairs and roof maintenance plans. Now you're doing gutters, you're doing windows, you're doing doors, you're doing patios. You might help with uh, screened-in enclosures. Uh, the list is endless, you know, and, and 
you go, well, what is the thing that we do best? And it's still roofing, but it's kind of lost in and when you come to say, you know, we need to put together a budget for advertising for the next year, well, are we going to spend it on roofing? Are we going to spend it on screened-in enclosures? Are we going to spend it on maintenance plans? And these businesses think that what they've done is expand the market, but all they've done is dilute their impact on the market. And there's very little ability to make a difference without pruning back services. So let's take it to the other extreme. I'm a roofing company. And I say, I, I want to become even more specialized. I'm going to do predominantly tile. I'm going to be a tile roof specialist. Okay, well, tile roofing in, it, in itself is an interesting specialty because now you begin to get into larger, um, more expensive homes. Those, that's just the nature. And also commercial buildings. That's just the nature of those types of, of roofing materials. They're going to be put on more expensive homes, and they're very common, at least in this area, in commercial applications. So, we're, so are you going to do metal roofing? No, nope, we're just going to do tile roofing. We're going to double down on tile roofing. Well, now we've automatically limited the number of suppliers that we have to deal with. So now we can build closer relationships with the suppliers. We can probably, as our market presence goes, we can negotiate better terms on purchases of, of materials. We also have limited the amount of training that we have to invest in for our salespeople and for our installers. But at the same time, we can spend more on training and have it be more effective. So we might have been spending, you know, we might have been sending salespeople to two or three seminars a year, and now we're still sending them to two or three seminars a year. But they're more targeted in dealing with higher income customers, or they're targeted on specific tile applications. And the more and more specialized we get, you might say, well, we're just going to do tile roofs in this particular county, and now your advertising is constrained to that county. And there is a point at which you're going to need to, you know, to grow the business, you're going to have to expand your market. But that point is farther down the road than most people realize. There is so much work that you can do to prune back services and narrow your focus within your, your existing market. And businesses just don't do it because they're, they've convinced themselves that it's easier to shoot you know, with a shotgun than it is with a rifle. And that analogy doesn't hold up in sales and marketing. You know, that you really need to prune back what you're offering people in almost every case. And when we look at, um, you know, what, what the actual product margin or profit margins are on the businesses that are the business lines or the products, the services that are being pruned back, we find that they're not great anyway. You know, they're, they may, in some cases, they may be barely break even. So you know, we looked at a, a medical practice one time, and they had a program that was you know kind of trickling along. And they said, "Well, you know, we have like two or three people a week coming into this program." And we said, "Well, that's that's that sounds good. Let's take a look at the numbers." And it was basically a program that was competing against Weight Watchers, but Weight Watchers, but it was uh, managed you know by a physician. And as we looked at the numbers, we found out that if we applied the physician's hourly pay rate to the amount of time that they were, they were spending managing these two to three new people a week, just the two to three people a week that were coming into the program were not paying enough to compensate the physician for his hourly wage. 
So we're already losing money there. There's no profit involved in it. And then if the physician spent any time at all on the other participants in the program, not just the new people, but you know people who've been in the program two weeks, three weeks, six weeks, which, which this physician did, then the program was totally underwater. But they couldn't get past the fact that there were two to three people a week walking in the door asking to buy something from them, and they were going to have to start telling these people no. That just seemed... That seemed foolish to them to pass up a sale. So pruning services uh, gets a lot easier if you know the numbers. But I would say you could probably take it uh, for granted as as a fact that in most businesses you're going to start to you're going to need to start pruning. Then the second point of value really deals around pricing, and we find that a lot of businesses don't follow a very um, disciplined approach to setting their prices meaning they tend to be cost plus pricing, which is fine if that's where the industry is. Because if the industry is cost plus, you still need to know where your competitors are on the plus. If it's cost plus 20% and the market is 20% and you're cost plus 15%, well, if you're trying to be a price leader, that may not be a bad thing. But if you're just doing that because that's what you've always done and the market because of you know scarcity of resources or or whatever has increased their prices and they've left you behind the message that you're telegraphing to the market is that I'm not as good as everybody else that's typically the message that is ascribed to somebody who has a lower price the premium prices are ascribed more um, more competency from a skill perspective and that's why we say and I and then we cover this in the book that if you're setting your prices too low, you're probably dealing with more warranty issues and customer service issues than you need to. Because if you're setting them too low, your customers are assuming they're not as good. And if there's any question, if there's any hesitation, if there's any little hiccup in in the product or the service after you've done your work, they're going to ascribe it to your lack of skill. And they're going to file a warranty claim or they're going to have a customer service issue. And a lot of times you can get past that just by increasing your prices. Now, you have to put your prices where the market's at, and you have to know the position that you want to play in the market. If you're trying to, to position yourself as a premium player in the market, you need to set your prices accordingly. But if you don't know where the market's setting their prices, you can't do that. If you're trying to set your if you're trying to play a value position in the market, then you need to know where's the middle of the market pricing their services. And that's where we're going to price and we're going to deliver over and above what everybody else at that price level is offering. That's kind of the the traditional uh, definition of a value player in the market. And if you want to be a a pricing leader, you know, a low-cost leader in your market, you have to know where the bottom end of the market is and what the minimum service standards are that are going to be required, you know, to to be able to um, to have people buy your service and not be really, really upset because, you know, you're not repping yourself as a premium. Um, you're also not repping yourself as a value. You're repping yourself as a, a low price leader. And so, but, but that's not at, you know, you can, just can't do anything. You have to know what are the standards, you know, that I'm going to have to deliver on. What are the product standards? What are the service standards I'm going to have to deliver on? And where is the market pricing? Because I need to be in the bottom or a third of that pricing structure. So how do you go about finding out where your market's at? Well, and again, this is where we find that companies just don't want to do the work. It's not hard to Google, 
you know, your, you know, what your customers are going to Google and come up with your five or six or seven biggest competitors in your area. That's fairly easy, right? And a lot of companies will do that. If we ask them to do that, they'll do it right there on the spot. And then we say, over the next week, we'd like you to call those people or have somebody you know call those people and secret shop them and try to figure out what their pricing is. And sometimes the pricing is publicly available. Sometimes people are not going, sometimes you're going to want to come out and give a proposal or do something like that. So you, you're going to have to figure out ways to do that. The other thing that you can do is go to your salespeople. If it is a market where uh, proposals are given, and you can say, hey, I, we really need to know where the market's at. When you win a job, can you ask your customers if you can have the, you know, the three other bids that they got? and make copies of those and bring them back to the office so we can see where is the market pricing their service offering relative to where we're pricing it. And that should be a discipline that you repeat at minimum twice a year. Every six months, you ought to be secret shopping your competition to find out where your prices are relative to to theirs. And what you're really trying to establish is what is the market price for goods and services in my particular segment of the market, doing the thing that I do. Again, it's not rocket science, but we do find that most companies are not willing to do the work. And we ask them, like, when's the last time you adjusted prices? And they might say, oh, well, you know, at best, they say, well, we adjusted them within the last year. And we'll say, well, based on what? Well, you know, we haven't had a price increase in a long time, so we just felt like it was time. That's not a good answer. If, but the best answer would be, well, we went out in the market, and we found that we were underpricing the market by 5%. And we, we actually want to be in the top end, top third of pricing. So we increased our prices 7% on new business. And we feel like that's going to get us, you know, closer to where we need to be to be in that top third. That's fantastic. How, you know, tell us a little bit about the survey process you went through to find out where the market was priced. And they go, oh, you know, we, we called six competitors or we gathered 20 other quotes and kind of broke them down so we could compare apples to apples. And that's how we figured out where we're at. And I can tell you that happens maybe 1% of the time. If I talk to 100 customers in the last 20 years, maybe one of them has actually done that. So understanding value is a big piece of, of understanding um, you know, where the market's pricing. And then finally, the pitch is about do you have a repeatable process? And are you measuring the numbers that are associated with that process? Uh, it's not uncommon for us to go into businesses that have four or five salespeople and find that there are four or five different types of contracts that are actually being sold. So, you know, at one point in time, the contract was drafted, it was reviewed by an attorney, and then it was sent out to, you know, the, the two salespeople. And then a third salesperson was hired and he got, you know, the two, the two other salespeople maybe were working on version two, but somehow he got version 1.0. And then a salesperson made a tweak, and they ran it by the owner, and the owner said, that's fine. I don't think that's going to be an issue. Now, he's got a different contract. And over time, these things just multiply like rabbits until we've got six salespeople, seven salespeople in the field, and we've got seven different versions of a sales contract. That's, that's bad. I mean, that's, that's kind of worst case. Um, I can guarantee you, if that situation exists, I guarantee you we have seven different ways among seven different salespeople, of meeting with the customer, discerning needs, coming up with offers and proposals and that kind of stuff. There's my point is there's if you got different contracts, I guarantee you've got a different process, a different sales process 
for working with those businesses or, or those individuals who are going to be customers. So standardizing your pitch is all about making sure that if I got seven people, it's done the same way all seven times. Not that their personalities don't play a part in it, not that customers aren't going to have you know different experience depending on the salesperson, but the process is the same. And it is the personality that is the difference maker. So if we look at the results of different salespeople, we can clearly discern, wow, this person's getting really great results, and we can pull them into a sales meeting, or we can do a ride-along with them and a ride-along with some of the others and go, here are the differences in the way this person's approaching the customer. Here's the differences in the way that they're interacting. Here's the differences in the way they're building relationship. And if we all do do this uh, more effectively, kind of the way they're doing it, we're all going to get better results. And at that point, you're, you're able to iterate on the process. And you might find that, yeah, this person takes you know, certain liberties uh, with a certain part of the process. And maybe you look at you stand back and you look at the whole thing. Yeah, we should make it less structured here because obviously that is suiting customers better and they're closing at a higher rate. You may also find that initially the good results that, that it looks like a salesperson is getting um, maybe aren't a good effect because they're over-promising and under-delivering or they're promising things that we just have no prayer of delivering. Right? And they've kind of gone rogue and gone off the process and you have to pull them back. But in both cases, you need to have a standard pitch process that um, is documented and that you train people to and that you measure the results against. So the other thing that we find, the same way that businesses will rarely do the hard work to understand, you know, where is the market pricing, they also don't do the hard work to measure their numbers. So we go through some numbers in here that these are kind of table stakes for every single business that we work with. Tell me the number of leads you have coming in here every day, every week. You know, how many leads did you get yesterday? I go... Um, I don't, I'm not sure how we would get that. Okay, that pitch process is broken. Fundamentally, it's broken. And we're not going to be able to make much progress before we figure out how do we quantify the number of leads that are coming in the front door. And those can be leads calling the phone. Those can be leads going directly to salesperson cell phones. Those can be leads uh, from the website. But we have to quantify how many leads are coming into the business every day, every week, every month? Number two, we have to quantify the cost of each lead. What are we spending to bring those leads in? If we're spending $300 a month on Google AdWords or $3,000 or $30,000 a month on Google AdWords, we have, to measure, we have to be able to measure how many leads are coming in through that channel and divide the number of leads by the cost to get the cost per lead or I guess the other way around, divide the cost by the number of leads to get the cost per lead. Um, if you're advertising on television or radio and you can't identify the customers that are coming to you through those channels, through tracking numbers or specific URLs to your website, then you need to restructure those ads and that, and that ad spend so that we can measure how many customers are coming in through those channels and do the math to find out what is our cost per lead. We can also, in a, in a good system, we can track not only our cost per lead, but our cost per new customer. Because you may have some channels that are generating lots of leads at a low cost, but very, very few of those leads is actually becoming a customer. So the cost per customer is actually very high, but the cost per lead is very low. And if you can't track customers through the process, you won't know those things. 
Uh, the third thing was the top five lead sources and the number of leads produced by each. A lot of times if we go into a business and ask that question, we get you know a totally anecdotal answer where the business owner or the sales manager just off the top of their head is like, oh, well, you know, there's there's the website and there's Facebook and then there's, um, you know, business networking groups. And they're like, no, like I need in order quantified for last month, what were your top five lead sources and how many leads did you get from each one? Number four, the number of proposals or pitches given. So how many pitches, how many proposals did we issue last week? You know, um, and we did about, we got five people in the field each one does about two a day, so that's about 10 a day. It was four, four work weeks. We had a total about probably like 40. That is the wrong, that's the wrong answer. Like I need to know, we did, did we do 37? Did we do 41? Did we do 42? I got to know exactly how many pitches, how many proposals we had last week. If we can't do that, then the, the process is broken. The close rate on those proposals, so of, say, there were 41, how many of them actually bought from us? You know, was it 20? That's 50% close ratio. That sounds pretty good. Was it one? It's like a two to two to 3% close ratio. That's not so good. But what is the number of, of people we actually sold to? What's the close ratio on those proposals? What's the average amount of sale and the sale frequency per customer? So those, those things, the average amount of sale and the sales frequency per customer, probably... Uh, a lot of businesses don't have those readily at hand. They're not metrics they're tracking. Uh, it's kind of stuff that you kind of look back over the last year and maybe compare it to the prior couple of years. If we ever run into a business that has those metrics on a dashboard, I can guarantee you that the other five metrics we just talked about, those are also on the dashboard because that's kind of graduate level stuff to get to the amount of your average sale and the uh, average sale frequency. And then the finally, like the delivery, and this is where I'll talk about the 10 kind of uh, personality, business personality suggestions. Um, we see this, you know, you and I see this every day when we go out and we interact with businesses in the real world. We see businesses that either have a personality or businesses don't. And um, I ran into this recently. You know, I uh, love them or hate them. Like Starbucks has figured out a lot of really good things. And one of the things that I noticed just about every Starbucks I'm in, and I'm, I'm not there as much as I used to be. I used to, seems like I used to be at Starbucks a lot more often, but um, pretty much every time I'd walk in the door, somebody would greet me. And that's nice. It's nice to have some, somebody say hello when you walk in the door and like hello looking for a response. I remember I'm old enough to remember um, Blockbuster Video. And Blockbuster Video, uh, you know, was a place that back in the back in the old old days they they would rent VHS tapes. Where you'd go there and you'd rent your movie. Later they got into CDs or I'm sorry DVDs and Blu-rays. Um, but you would go there and you would rent the movie and you take it home and you watch it and then you bring it back. And Blockbuster Video had a policy and it was very clearly a policy that they stringently enforced that every single person who walked in the door had to be greeted with a hello, welcome to Blockbuster. And so you would walk in the door and you would hear from like the far corners of the store, hello, welcome to Blockbuster, and you wouldn't, you wouldn't see a person because that person, that usually you know, 16, 17, 18-year-old person 
who was working uh, the shift, was head down putting DVDs back on a shelf. They just heard the door chime and knew that if they didn't say, hello, welcome to Blockbuster, a manager was going to give them hell for it. And I don't know how they policed it, but man, they, they must have come down hard on people who didn't give that greeting. Every time you walked in, they give the greeting. And it was the most disingenuous, insulting, patronizing nonsense. You, I mean, as somebody who pays attention to this stuff, I'd be like, I would rather you just not say anything than, than give me that kind of, I don't give a flying flip. You know, this is just what I have to say or I get in trouble. And I'm blaming the kids. I'm blaming the managers. I'm blaming the people who put those policies into place absent any other cultural training that meant anything about honoring customers and paying attention to them. And that's what we see when we look at businesses that we like to, to go back to over and over again. So when I walk into a Starbucks, they say hello. And if I look up to see who said it, they're looking at me. And they're, and they're, you know, they're waiting for me to say hi back. I like that. It's like, it feels like I'm doing business with real people. When I give them my order, they ask for my name and they write, write it on the cup. And then when they deliver the order, they deliver it by name. And almost always the person who made the drink is, is within two or three feet of me picking it up at the counter and they thank me for the order. This, ha- this happens over and over again at multiple different locations. Then when I leave, they always say goodbye as I'm walking out the door. Almost always. Those three or four simple acts don't cost Starbucks a dime. It doesn't cost them any money to do those things. And they don't take any more time, energy. They do take a little bit of effort, but not much. Very, very little. And they make all the difference in the world. I walk contrast this on... Last Friday, I believe it was. Yeah, last Friday morning, um, I dropped my son off at school, and I was actually touring another school uh, with my wife. And so we it wasn't time for the tour to start yet. So you know, I stopped, and I and I was going to go to Starbucks, and it was just insane. Cars trying to get in, backed up on the main road, and no place to park. And I wanted to get a little bit of work done, so I was like, oh, well, there's a Dunkin' Donuts you know, like another two blocks away. So I turned around, I went to Dunkin' Donuts. There's nobody in there. And there is a, they're doing a brisk drive through business. And I walk in, there's nobody in the restaurant, no hello, uh, no acknowledgement. I stand at the counter. There are three employees, eat, you know, less than 10 feet away from me, one, maybe two feet away from me. And they are busy pulling donuts off the rack for the drive through line. And they're stressed out. And I get it. I, I understand, you know, stressful days. They hadn't gotten their quantity of donuts that morning. They were really low. And customers, you know, in the drive through weren't able to get everything they wanted. And these, these kids were stressed out. But I stood there for a solid three or four minutes before anybody acknowledged me. And when the person acknowledged me, they did apologize for what had happened. Um, but from there, like zero, never asked for my name, never said thank you for the order, um, never said goodbye, none of that stuff. Totally dropped the ball from a customer service perspective. And it upsets me because that's the culture that that particular franchisee or, or manager, if it's a company-owned store, that is the culture that they have allowed to to become the norm in that business. And it doesn't have to be that way. 
It doesn't. All you have to do is teach people some very simple rules. Chick-fil-A, another one of my great favorite examples. If you ask for anything at Chick-fil-A, every employee there is taught to say, my pleasure. And they mean it. They, I, I guess they mean it. They seem like they mean it. They genuinely want to help. And I've never walked into a Chick-fil-A and gotten terrible service. And I'm a, you know, I'm a parent with three kids. We're in Chick-fil-A all the freaking time. And I've never gotten bad service. I've had a couple times where the food wasn't great, but I've never had bad service. And it's just simply because they have a personality. The business has a personality. And we say this all the time. A business with a personality will crush a competitor without a soul. So my encouragement to you with regard to Chapter 6 and kind of the whole sales and marketing process is don't make it any harder than it is. Understand your offer. If you need to prune, you probably do. If you need to prune back services, just start small. Prune back one or two. You'll be amazed at the amount of time you get back and the, and the amount of cost savings that are involved in that. Eventually, you're going to have to prune back some much bigger ones. And if you if you struggle with this, Mike Michalowicz's book, The Pumpkin Plan, is an excellent read. It's it's a great. I don't necessarily like to read those um, those kind of uh, what do they call them? Not fairy tales, but uh, kind of parable type books. I don't like those uh, to read, but I can listen to them on Audible, and I like them a lot. Maybe because it's, it just feels like more of a story time kind of thing. Um, and that's a great one. The Pumpkin Plan is a great book in terms of illustrating the principles for what it feels like to start pruning. Pruning back early is not that difficult, but the biggest gains that you get in pruning are when you chop off the really good branches and to sacrifice them for the great branches, the ones that are really going to produce the results. And there's some great, there's a great example in the book that I just love. I won't spoil it for you. But listen to Mike McAllister's book in, in terms of getting clear on your offer and pruning. And then um, in terms of the, um, the pitch, if you don't have a standard process, then you need to sit down and just figure, just ask this question. What do we want our customers to experience from the time they become a prospect until the time they become a repeat customer? And think about that you know, just in real life terms. How do we want them to interact with salespeople? What do we want the salespeople to say? What do we want the salespeople to leave in their hands? What questions do we want them to ask? And how do we want to follow up with them to kind of clinch the deal? And how do we want to start the the project with them? And what do we want to how do we want to check in maybe midway through the project? And how do we want to follow up at the end to make sure that we did the job we thought we did, you know, to the service standard we expected? And just map out what is that, what do we want that customer experience to look like? And then just get religious about documenting those processes and measuring them and knowing your numbers, like those numbers that we talked about in terms of the number of leads and the number of proposals and the close rate. You're going to have to do the work to get those things. And then in terms of delivery, um, just teach your people to, to have a personality when they're interacting with customers. You know, people in relationships – they walk in and they, they want to do business with you. That's a gift. It, and it doesn't matter whether they're walking into a bricks-and-mortar facility or they're visiting your website. They are choosing to do business with you. And you have an opportunity to build a relationship. We believe at Axiom, like, what, the reason that we do what we do, the, our why, is all about the fact that we believe small business done well has a greater ability to impact the world than any church, than any government program, than any nonprofit, any social institution, any of that stuff. We believe business, small business especially, 
has an ability to impact the world in a positive way, better than all those other vehicles. But it won't do it if it ignores the fundamental building block of relationship and the opportunity that exists to build relationship with customers every single day. So for me, I get passionate about this stuff because it goes beyond just the dollars and cents. Yes, you're going to make a lot more money if you develop a personality in your business and you give people the, the training they need to build relationships with customers. You're going to make a lot more money, and that's great. But what I can also guarantee is that you'll be way more excited about the difference you're making in the world if you do those same things. So why not do them both? And we'll see you next week. <laughs>